Okay, friends, good to see you interacting with each other this morning. You can remain standing if you don't mind, if you're able to. We're going to say the creed in a second here. Ladies and gentlemen, can you give it up one more time for Dennis K. Massaro? That was about the best pitch for life in the church that I've ever heard. Really well done. Thank you for your testimony. Also, thanks just for being among us. We love you, Dennis K. Massaro. You're a gift to this community. One uh, quick note, I lost my voice this past week, and so I've spent the last few days uh, nursing it back to health. Uh, my wife tells me, don't yell this morning. That's what she said. I ha- so I have a lozenge in my mouth, I've got hot tea in my hand, and I have my accountability partner on the front row. So if I'm a little more subdued this morning, it's not because I don't care, it's because I'm listening to my body, okay? That's something we do in the 21st century. We just learned that. So, all right, we're going to declare... <laughs> okay, we're going to declare our faith together this morning. And um, the way that I want you to do this is not as a recitation of abstract things that we happen to believe, but this is not just the church's belief, but it's our prayer. And so I want you to enter into the creed this morning as a form of worship and as a form of prayer. So let's offer up our faith to the Lord here. Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Sometimes, Lord, it seems like these things are impossible. We look for the resurrection of the dead. Is that true? And the life of the world to come, is it true? Is it true that someday Jesus will return? And that he will drive sickness and death and disease and judgment out of our world and make all things new? We believe that. We say this morning, help us in our unbelief. The places where it hasn't worked its way into our members, the places where it's not yet truly true of us, (laughs) would you come? Jesus, we're looking to you this morning as rabbi, as teacher, as helper, as friend. 
we ask that just as we're studying the book of Revelation, which is an unveiling of Jesus Christ, we ask that you would unveil yourself to us. We ask that in the words of the preacher and in the words of the scripture and at the table of the Lord, that you would pull back the veil of reality and that we'd see your bright, smiling face once again. That face that is the height of human longing, that face that is our very joy, that face that to see it is its own reward. Nothing more would we have to be given in this life to be happy, that face. We're asking that we'd see that face this morning. Granite, we're praying. I'm asking that the words of my mouth, the preacher's mouth, and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, you may be seated. Revelation chapter 10. John writes, then I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars, and he was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. And he planted his right foot in the sea, and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout, everybody say a loud shout, like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voice of seven thunders spoke, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what they've said and don't write it down. Then the angel that I'd seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that's in them, and the earth that's all that's in it, and the sea and all that's in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. Everybody say, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And so I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, sure enough, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, languages, and kings. Peoples, peoples, nations, languages, and kings. There it is. I want to make sure I get that right. Brothers and sisters, this, and not the thing that I said right before that, is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, thanks be to you, God. Thanks be to to God. Scholars think that what we have here in chapter 10 is an important pivot point. The book of Revelation is now shifting into new territory and it's important to pay attention to the details of what's happening or else we'll miss the importance of this shift. We've seen up till now in the book of Revelation, just to give a quick recap, we've seen Jesus revealed as the coming one in chapter 2. We've seen him revealed as the one who walks among the churches in chapters 2 and 3. We've seen the Ancient of Days seated on the throne, and in his right hand he held a scroll, right? The scroll seems to hold the meaning of human history, and it's sealed with seven seals. And in chapter 5 we learn that nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to take the scroll from his right hand to open it or even to look inside of it. In other words, no mortal being can tell you the meaning of history. It's going to take an immortal being to do that. And sure enough, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah comes, Jesus the Lord, the lamb seated on the throne. He takes the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And in chapter 6, he begins to break the seals of the scroll. And as he unfolds the meaning of human history, what we begin to learn is that human history is one judgment following another. Human history is terrifying. In chapter 6, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We see the will to dominate, and we see war, and we see oppression, and violence, and death. And what you get in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 taken together is you get a kind of escalation of judgment throughout those chapters. So one of the things that you'll notice when you're reading chapter 6 is that the writer of the book of Revelation, John, will say that a quarter of the earth or a quarter of humanity succumbs to the judgment that's unleashed on planet earth. Well, by the time you get to chapters 8 and 9 with the trumpet sounding, that number is no longer a quarter. But some of you who are uh, avid readers of the book of Revelation, you might have noticed this. What does it increase to? A third. So it goes from a quarter to a third. And so what you seem to be getting then throughout the book of Revelation is a description of what human history has been like, right? That since the fall, it really has been chaos and plague and famine and death. And it doesn't seem to have relented from the fall of man until now. It seems to have gotten worse. So you think about the 20th century. The 20th century was surely the bloodiest century that we've ever seen on planet Earth. And this was supposed to be the century of science and progress and modern economics and enlightenment and all of that. And just when our confidence in ourselves got to be the highest, so we murdered more people in human history than ever before. Our history matches very well what's happening in the book of Revelation, doesn't it? That it's escalating judgment. And that judgment, uh, some of it is just kind of self-imposed. We kind of walk in foolishness. But some of that judgment also really does come directly from the hand of God. That one of the things that God does as our Father is that he allows us to be visited by the consequences of our choices. He brings those to bear on us, and his bringing those to bear on us, that's intended to awaken us to repentance. But then you come to this very interesting moment at the end of Revelation chapter 9. So here we have this escalation of pain, escalation of judgment, escalation of violence on planet Earth. And we read this in Revelation 9 and verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues still did not, what does the text say? They still didn't repent. They didn't repent of the work of their hands. They didn't stop worshiping demons and idols of gold or silver, bronze, and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk, nor did they, what does the text say? They didn't repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So we have had in the book of Revelation increasing violence, increasing chaos, increasing catastrophe. And you would think that in the midst of that, somebody would come to their senses and go, what are we doing? We need to turn back to the Lord. And instead, the effect has been the opposite. People have hardened their hearts to God. And so Jesus seems to know that judgment alone, and I need you to listen very carefully to this, Judgment alone is not enough to bring salvation to the earth. It's not enough just for human beings to experience the pain of their choices, the pain of alienation 
from God the pain of their rebellion. Something more is required. And Jesus knows precisely what that something more is. If we just stayed with judgment, human history would be locked up in judgment. Jesus knows that something else is required to unlock our history and take it into the realm of salvation. And in chapter 10, now he begins to shift gears and take us into the realm of salvation. He shows us two things that we need to pay attention to. He shows us a mighty angel coming down from heaven. One foot is planted in the sea. One foot is planted on the land. So we need to figure out who this angel is. The second thing that we see is that this angel is holding something in his hand, open in his hand. Do you remember what it is? Yeah, we just read it just a little bit ago. What is it? It's a scroll. He's holding a little scroll in his right hand, and that scroll is open as well. If we're going to understand what's going on in chapter 10, we need to make sense of the angel and the scroll. Who is the angel and what is the scroll? Now, it could be that what we have in Revelation 10 is just another mighty angel of the Lord. And we've seen mighty angels of the Lord in Scripture. We've seen the archangel Gabriel and Michael, Micah. We've seen, or Michael, we've seen the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, journeyed with the people of God. And so it could be that this is just kind of a, another iteration of a mighty angel from God. But John is giving us important clues that this mighty angel is something greater than just an angel. I want you to look back at the text with me. This is, here's the first description that he gives to the angel in chapter 10 and verse 1. He says that this angel was, first of all, robed in a cloud. Well, we have heard language like this before. In chapter 1 and verse 7, John said, look, he is coming with the clouds. And who is the he that he's referring to in chapter 1? Jesus. Okay. So we got something cooking here, ladies and gentlemen. Second thing he says about the, about the angel is that the angel had a rainbow above his head. In chapter 4 and verse 3, we saw a rainbow encircling the throne. Who did we find out is seated on the throne in chapter 5? That's right. Jesus is seated on the throne in chapter 5. Next description of this angel, his face was like the We've heard this exact, okay, with no modifications. We've heard this exact language before from John in chapter 1 of verse 17, where he says his face was like the sun. Who is he talking about here? You got it now. I think you're catching on. He says that his legs were like fiery pillars. This is 10.1. And in chapter 1 of verse 15, we learn that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. If you haven't picked it up by now, who is the person who's being talked about in chapter 1? Jesus. Okay, now this is one of those places in the Greek text of Scripture where it literally says, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) John is tipping his hand here. He's giving us these important clues to identify who this mighty angel is. And as if. All of this were not enough. He goes on to say that the angel gave a loud shout like what? The roar of a lion. And in chapter 5-5, we learn that the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. Brothers and sisters, who is the mighty messenger coming down from heaven? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Moreover, Jesus is holding something in his hands. 
He's holding a little scroll open in his hand, and he says about the scroll that in the days when the seventh angel is about to accomplish, sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Now, in the New Testament, wherever you see the word mystery in the Greek musterion, it is always referring to something very specific. And do you know what that something specific is? It's the purpose of God in history as it is accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Lord. So get the picture here. Human history is trapped in judgment. It's shut up inside chaos and catastrophe. There is death everywhere. There is chaos everywhere. There is famine everywhere. There is plague everywhere. And nobody is repenting. (laughs) Nobody is turning to the Lord. And the thing that breaks human history out into the wide open plains of salvation is what? The arrival of Jesus Christ in the midst of history, holding in his hand the gospel of our salvation. This is the thing that breaks human history open. If judgments were enough to sweep human beings up into the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, all humanity would have been swept up into the kingdom of God a long time ago, but they weren't. So what brings salvation to the earth is not judgment alone, brothers and sisters, but it's Jesus and his gospel. Can I get an amen this morning? It's Jesus and his gospel. It's not until God takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus, not until he lives a human life, not until he dies a brutal death, not until he's raised to life again on the third day, not until the Spirit is poured out on a group of 120 people in the upper room, not until that moment is human, humanity taken up into the kingdom of God. It's Jesus and his gospel that breaks our history open. Judgment isn't enough to do the trick, and God knows that. God knows that. This might surprise you, transitional story here, but uh, I got a lot of spankings when I was a kid. I know that's hard for you to believe, but um, I did. I got a lot of spankings when I was a kid. Oldest child in the family, parents, uh, zealous Christians, and, uh, you know, maybe I got the lion's share of them. Actually, I think I I know that. My siblings barely got any, so uh, I think my parents were trying to prove a point with me or something. Be that as it may. A lot of spankings when I was a kid, and as I look back on it, I'm fairly certain that all of them were very well deserved. And the thing um, about little Andrew was that he wasn't like a rebellious child per se. It's just that I was always right. (laughs) And I knew it and my parents didn't know that. And so I would ask my parents (laughs) if I could do this thing or try this thing out or whatever. And they would say no. And I would think to myself, this is because they have not seen the wisdom of my cause. And so surely when I do the thing and it's all done, they'll come over and they'll see and they'll say, just like the Lord Jesus said, surely wisdom is proved right by all of her children. Look at the smart thing that our son has done. And 100% of the time it did not turn out that way. I would do the thing and they would come back and they would see it and it was rebellion. And I, 
and get a spanking and all of that. And it's important for us to be disciplined. Uh, the way that the Bible talks about judgment is that judgment is discipline. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that if we're not disciplined, we're illegitimate children. Uh, God is our heavenly Father. He doesn't allow sin to go overlooked. He, you need to hear this. Uh, God is bent on dealing with sin in our world. And judgment is his address to human sin. He's trying to break the back of evil in our world. Uh, God definitely does discipline. And he doesn't do it just because he's annoyed. Okay? And sometimes when we think of God's judgment, we think about it that way. We think that, you know, God just kind of has these personal preferences. And the problem with human beings is that we just haven't gotten clued into God's personal preferences. You know, like God is the kind of deity uh, who likes the toilet paper to go under on the roll. And we're the kind of humans that like it to go over. And so we did it wrong and God got mad. And that's not what it is. God is bent on destroying the things in us that destroy us. That's what God's discipline is. And I hope that you caught that this morning. God is bent on destroying the things in us that destroy us. Sin destroys us. So God, like a surgeon, God, like a doctor, God, like a father, comes at human sin to dig it out. But God knows that merely the digging out, merely the judgment is not enough to address human sin. Are you tracking with me this morning, brothers and sisters? Something more is required. And the thing that my parents did that probably is the well of my good relationship with them to this day is that on the other side of discipline, as part of the moment of discipline, is my parents always worked hard to rebuild relationship. That there would be the breakdown of the discipline, and then there would be a time where they invested back in me. I remember I, probably hundreds of times. I got relationship time. My dad would take me out for ice cream. We'd go throw the baseball. We'd play some basketball. We'd watch a movie together. We'd do something together. It wasn't just the discipline. It was also the good news. Come on, somebody. It was also the good news of their desire to have a relationship with me. That was the thing that dug whatever evil was in me as a little kid. Are you tracking with me this morning? Guys, this, this is the way that it is with our God. And like I said, if judgment were enough to bring about salvation, the whole world would have been saved a long time ago. Our history has been a history that's been enclosed by the judgment of God. War and plague and pestilence and famine, all of those things that proceed from human sin. If judgment was enough, we would have gotten swept up into the kingdom. But it wasn't until the mighty messenger from heaven, Jesus the Lord, who took on our flesh and died our death and raised us up to new life again on the third day. It wasn't until he stepped on the stage of human history that human beings have begun to come into the kingdom of God. We now are living in a time 20 centuries after the arrival of Jesus where literally billions of people have turned to the Lord because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If judgment was alone enough... You know, I tripped over this one in the first service, didn't I? If judgment alone was enough to bring salvation, it would have happened a long time ago. It wasn't until Jesus arrived. And it's always when Jesus arrives that human life begins to turn around. Think about one of my favorite stories from New Life the last couple years. A young woman wandered into one of our services several years ago. She was trapped in all kinds of, the fruit of all kinds of foolish choices and foolish decisions in an abusive relationship, did not know the Lord at all. Her life 
was trapped, okay, enclosed in judgment. And she comes into a new life service, and she hears the good news of Jesus Christ. And she's loved by the church. Week after, after week after week, there's something about the goodness of the Lord Jesus that resonates with her in those services. And she keeps coming back. And as she comes back, they keep preaching the gospel to her. And she keeps hearing about the Lord Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, week after week after week after week, the hardness of her heart begins to break down. And eventually, Jesus and his gospel begin to make their way into the innermost places of her heart. She's converted. She gets baptized. And all of a sudden, you start seeing the darkness of her life peeled back like layers from her. And now I watch her. I was just at New Life North last Sunday. That's where she attends on Sunday mornings. And I watch her when she comes into the building. And she has the kind of smile that will light up a room. If judgment alone was enough to bring salvation, it would have happened to her long before she wandered into a church building. But it's when Jesus arrives. It's when the gospel is proclaimed. It's when the love of God is communicated that all of a sudden our eyes are open and we see and we come into the kingdom. Are you with me this morning, brothers and sisters? Can I get some amens in the room this morning? All right, all right. I'm telling you, it's the way it is. Last Sunday, I was signing books after the second service and a couple came up to me. And I said, who am I signing this book? I'd never met this couple before. I said, who am I signing this book over to? And they gave me their names, and I started writing them down. And they said, we're the parents of the young man who committed suicide in the parking lot here five years ago. And I did not know anything about this story, and it stopped me dead in my tracks. I said, what? What happened? And they said, well, he was sitting here after a service, and he was, we knew that he was depressed. We didn't realize how depressed and how anxious and how tormented he was, and he sat out in the parking lot, and he had a gun, and after the service, he took his own life. And my eyes filled up with tears. And I started saying to them, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm thinking about it. My kids are with me this morning. I thought about what would happen to me inside if one of my kids harmed themselves like that and how I would be undone by that. My mind started re reeling. My heart started racing. My eyes welled up with tears. And I just started saying to them, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I didn't know anything about that. And they reached their hand across the table. They put their hands on my hand and said, no, 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 stop. It's okay. This church put our life back together. They've been so kind to us and so good to us. They've helped us with everything that we, we need. They've given Jesus to us. And we, sincerely, we're okay. You don't need to grieve for us. And I found out later, and I did not know this about this couple, but I found out later that this couple was not even attending New Life Church at the time that their son committed suicide. They weren't even believers. Do you know how they became believers? That when that young man took his life, we reached out to that family and we took care of their needs and we got them grief counseling and we got them involved in restoration ministries. And in the midst of their judgment, we started sharing with them the good news of the love of God that has been made known to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And wouldn't you know it, the judgment that they were enclosed within, what happened to it? It shattered. 
And they began to awaken in their souls to the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And that couple was baptized in our church. And they are there at New Life North every Sunday morning, sitting at 11F, receiving love from the church around them. Their life was enclosed in judgment, brothers and sisters. And what set them free? Jesus. It's Jesus and his gospel. It's the only thing that makes the difference in human history. It's made the difference in your life. It's made the difference in mine. I've been a believer all of my life. And I've made some stupid choices gotten caught up in errant patterns of thinking and things that just led me into places where my life all of a sudden started to feel like it was in a dark, enclosed place. And you know what got me out of it? Every time was not just some encounter with God in the existential ether up here. It was Jesus and his gospel. It was that the church had the courage over and over again in the midst of my madness to say to me, Andrew Arndt, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And this confusion that you're in and the choices that you're in, this little closed, narrow place that you're in, it's a lie. Jesus has wide open spaces for you. All of his goodness is yours. Believe the gospel. Again, do you understand the whole task of the Christian life is to believe the gospel, which is why when the angel comes with the scroll in his right hand, he doesn't just say to John, hey, just read this and think about it. Why don't you cogitate on the stuff that's in here? Do you know what he says? Eat it. (laughs) Eat these words. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Eat it. Be fed by it. Take it into your members. And wouldn't you know it, you are what you eat. And when we eat... No, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm yelling. I'm so sorry. I'm breaking up. It's Jesus. We're trying here, you know. Wouldn't you know it, brothers and sisters, that when you eat the gospel of God's freedom, what happens? You become free. And when you eat the gospel of God's love, what happens? You're full of love. What happens when you eat the gospel of God's goodness? We become good. What happens when we eat the gospel of how we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God? We become that. We don't just think about it, but we take it into our members. It's the challenge of this is that we take it into our bones, into our ligaments and sinews, into our cells, that we would not just hold the gospel out here as something objective to us, but that we become part of the gospel. That we become part of the good news of how God is saving the world, and we, he will not stop until it is so saved. Can I get some amens in this house this morning? Jesus arrives on the scene, and he doesn't just tell John to believe the gospel. He tells John to eat the gospel. And wouldn't you know it, and with this, that, with this we'll start making our way into communion. Wouldn't you know it that when we start eating the gospel, curious things begin to happen to us. Look one more time at what John says. He writes this. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me one more time. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea in the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will what? 
Turn your stomach sour, but on your lips, in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. So I took the scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And sure enough, it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, what happened? My stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Brothers and sisters, and I know that this is true to your experience. When the gospel comes to us, it comes to us as nourishment. It comes to us as wholesomeness. It comes to us as that which will make us strong, and it does make us strong. And yet, at the same time, that reception of the goodness of God into our members, it has a funny effect on us, doesn't it? That it has this way of making our stomach ill. That we look around at a world around us that is not yet as God intends, and we get sick to our stomach. That our saying yes to the goodness of God, our saying yes to the gospel, our taking it into our bones, it puts us in situations that we would not have chosen for ourselves. It gives us vexations and agonies that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. I think about it all the time when I'm in the middle of anxieties and doubts and gnawing fears or pains in my stomach that I wouldn't have if I didn't follow Jesus. I think about all those people that I know that have wandered away from the faith, people that I've been close to over the years, and how I wake up in the middle of the night with tears in my eyes and my head hurts and my stomach aches for them. And I think to myself, Jesus, it would be easier. It would be easier if I wasn't following you. I could just go use my gifts and use my talents and use my time and make a lot of money and buy a boat and a house up in the mountains and just numb myself to death with television and that's what I could do. But instead, following you takes me into pains that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Some of you in this room, actually probably all of you in this room, you're sitting with agonies that are not agonies that are self-imposed. They're agonies that you have because of the gospel of Jesus, because of your commitment. And there's this thing inside of you that you go, oh, I just wish I could take that out and be done with it. And I'm saying to you, you can't be done with it. Do you understand that Jesus Christ, when he came among us, he didn't come to have a life that was just sort of a walk among the roses. Oh, everything's just wonderful. But Jesus Christ came among us and he entered into our agony. He entered into our passion. He entered into our pain. He entered into our ache and he did it out of love for us. And when he calls us to himself, he calls us to enter into the pain and the ache and the agony of the world. When you're burdened for other people, when you're laying awake at night, when you have tears in your eyes for those people that are far from the Lord and you can't sleep until they come back, you're participating in the passion of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? This morning, brothers and sisters, I remember sitting several years back with a woman whose husband had made a series of terrible choices. They had two children at the time, and the husband's terrible choices ramified into rebellion with the kids. And one of them ended up in jail, and this woman was a faithful woman, is a faithful woman, that had promises of God that God would return her family, restore her family. We sat down in the cafe at New Life North one day, and she's got tears streaming down her face. Andrew, I've got these promises from the Lord. How long is it going to be before God restores my family to me? And why does it hurt so much? And I remember listening to her that day, and I remembered the 16th century mathematician and Christian, Blaise Pascal, said, he said that Christ is in agony until the end of the world. And the church must not fall asleep during that time. And I said to her, I don't have any answers for you. I don't know why the Lord hasn't delivered on his promise yet to restore your family. 
But this I do know, that the Lord has called you to stand in that place for your family. And when you're up in the middle of the night with tears in your eyes, and when you have those days when you can't stop thinking about them, and when your stomach hurts, when your body hurts for your family, for the pain of the world around you, that right there is precisely the place that Jesus is calling you. We've been called, brothers and sisters, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What that means is that we bear the pain of the world in our lives, the ache of the world, the disjointedness of the world, the many ways in which the world does not line up right now with the kingdom of God that touches you. I know that it does. Your parents who aren't following Jesus, the things that you see in society that aren't right, the job that you have where you're seeing trends of evil and iniquity in your job, and you feel like you're powerless to resist it, but you know that you must. This is what you signed up for. This is what you signed up for. And as you stand in that place, you become a prophet to the nations. And God is getting the glory. He is conquering the world through you. Brothers and sisters, this is your call. This is my call. Can you receive that this morning? Let's stand to our feet and prepare our hearts for communion. Oh, Spirit of God. I want you now to think about those things, those places that you're connected to that cause you ache and cause you pain, cause you agony. Folks in your life who are far from Jesus, situations that you're connected to, that if you could just wave a magic wand and fix it, you'd do it right now, but it's not going away that easy. We're all connected to stuff like that. I want you to think about those now, and I want you to begin to hold them up before the Lord. Like Pastor Tim taught last week, let it rise like incense to the Lord. So Lord Jesus, we let it rise before you. We let it rise before you. Now I'm praying now for all of the disjointed relationships that are represented in this room. Uh, wives whose husbands are making terrible choices. Husbands whose wives are making terrible choices. Parents who are watching their kids wander away from the faith. Employees who feel powerless to stand against the tide of evil. Those of us who are called into places of pain in our society, Lord, and we feel like we just don't have enough in us and it causes us ache, it causes us pain, it causes us agony. We're asking, Lord Jesus, that you would begin to speak a word of liberation into those places. We're asking, Lord Jesus, that you would conquer. We're asking, Lord Jesus, that you would triumph. We're asking, Lord Jesus, that this morning you would affirm to us once again that as we feel that ache and as we feel that agony, we're not in the wrong place, we're in the right place. That we're located right inside the heart of God. That we're located right inside the passion of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd affirm us in this moment and bless us in this moment and strengthen us in this moment for faithfulness. Come, we pray. Come, we pray. Come, we pray. And we remember before you this morning, the Lord Jesus, that on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread. If you got the bread in your hands this morning, lift it up before the Lord. 
This is what he did. He took the bread and he broke it. Let's break it together all over this room. Listen to that. And Jesus said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Broken for a broken world. Broken to break you open for the world. This is my body. It's broken for you. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus pours out his life so that our life might be included in his life and also poured out for the life of the world. Guys, when we come to the table, do you know what's happening to us? Jesus is claiming us for himself. He's making us part of his ongoing intercession for the world. He's making us part of his ongoing agony for the world. He's making us part of his ongoing ache for the world. To come to the table of the Lord is not to resist that, but to come to the table of the Lord is to say yes to that, is to surrender yourself to the whole motion of Jesus' life. And so we remember before you, Lord Jesus, your broken body and your shed blood. And we put our confidence in you this morning that according to your own word, this bread and this cup will become for us more than bread and cup. It'll become a touch of your life in us. So now come, we pray. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Fill this moment with the mystery and the magnitude of your presence that these gifts might become for us a living encounter with the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant it, we pray. Let's take the bread together. Thanks be to God. Jesus the Lord, we worship you, Jesus. And now take the cup. And now begin to let worship rise in your heart before the Lord, brothers and sisters. We're going to sing one more song of worship together, and then Pastor Colin will close us.
My friends, thank you for joining us today on this Sunday morning. On your way out, would you be sure to stop by the, the group's tables and meet somebody for the first time? Stop by Andrew's table and buy some books, wait for him, and, and, uh, and have a great week. We're so glad that you were here. Would you close us in the doxology? Church, go in peace.